You are listening to audio from the Mariner campus of CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this message helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus. In just a moment, we are going to uh, continue our series working through the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Ryan is actually going to come up and share this morning. But before he does, I have the privilege of reading our scripture. So if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 7? Um, We've been in this sermon series for, I don't know, probably about four months. We have about three weeks left, so we're coming to the end of it. Um, But if you could stand to your feet, Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start reading together in verse 1. It's the words of Jesus. Here's what he says. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest you trample them underfoot, and they turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks, Sam. How are we doing this morning at 1130? All right. Love it. Well, as Sam uh, said, we've been working through our series, A New Humanity, on the Sermon on the Mount the last several months, and today we find ourselves at the beginning of the last chapter of this famous sermon preached by Jesus. And in this chapter, Jesus begins to summarize many of the things that he's taught up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount. And so as we look at Jesus' teaching this morning on judging others, we're gonna see that he recaps his instructions on anger, revenge, and hate in chapter five. And he re-emphasizes the call to forgive from the Lord's Prayer in chapter six. In fact, right off the bat, In our passage today, we see the reversal of the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive what? Mercy. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus is saying that in his kingdom, a hefty dose of mercy is needed as we make judgments. As Jesus' own little brother James says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What a line. So as we dissect our text this morning, I want to exhort you in three ways. Number one, to be slow to judge others. Number two, to be quick to judge yourself. And number three, to be wise among the world. And in all of these things, there's a through line of mercy and compassion, that judgment takes place within the container of mercy. So be slow to judge others. This is where we're gonna look at verses one and two. We all know that feeling of being judged, don't we? We're quickly aware of how we're being perceived when we sense the disapproval of someone toward us. And it doesn't feel good, does it? feels like we have to be guarded around the person judging us, and we don't feel free to be ourselves. Or if it's a sin issue being pointed out in our lives, we often know when that judgment is coming from a place of condemnation 
rather than restoration. Let me tell you the story of uh, a memorable date that I had with my wife a couple years ago. So we were out for a walk uh, in the lower mainland here and we're walking along a river. We decided to sit down at this bench and we're, you know, taken in the sun and these two guys start walking up to us with a Bible in hand. At this point, I'm like, all right, is it the Jehovah's Witnesses or is it the Mormons? Turns out it was neither. It was neither. So they, you know, they, they walk up to us and they, they ask, hey, do you, know, do you know Jesus? And I say, yeah, like, you know, we, we went to church this morning. And then they proceed to ask me, why is your wife wearing pants? And I say, well, you know, because we're in public. <laughs> I can't remember if I actually said that, but. <clears throat> Love it. So they start pulling out the Old Testament verse on cross-dressing in Deuteronomy 22.5 and saying that women who wear pants are dressing like men. So I start telling them that during biblical times, like men wore tunics, which looked a lot like dresses, and that pants weren't invented until centuries after this verse in Deuteronomy 22.5 was penned. So they're reading their own culture back into the text. It's something we shouldn't do. But of course, you can't argue with these guys, right? So the conversation just goes in circles. Now they end up saying that my wife's going straight to hell because she's wearing pants and it's an abomination to the Lord. Like I'm not even joking, this is what happened. And it wasn't just any pants, but ripped jeans. <laughs> Gasp. I'm feeling the judgment already, all right? I have ripped jeans. But in their minds, my wife's clothing wasn't holy enough. I don't think the 930 caught that one. <laughs> I like to call these pants my wife's hell pants now. Um, so at this point, I'm telling Jenny, hey, it's time to leave, right? Like, we're getting nowhere here. But there's something you should know about my wife. She's a strong South African Enneagram 8 type. So she knows how to tango with the best of them. And one of her best traits is that she knows how to respond with reason and maintain composure amidst an emotional ploy and refuses to stoop to that emotional level. She's way better at that than I am. So anyway, she debates them for a bit, definitely got further than I did with them, but eventually we parted ways after they told us we were going straight to hell. So in that conversation, I remember asking these guys, if you're trying to bring people into the kingdom and tell people about how amazing God is, out of everything you could start with, you're going to tell people they're an abomination to the Lord because of the clothing they're wearing? Like, like that's your starting point? And I'll be the first to admit, evangelism isn't one of my spiritual gifts. But I'm pretty sure there are about a million better ways to start telling someone about Jesus than that. Now, if they started by coming up to Jenny and I and saying, did you know that you're made in God's image and have inherent worth and dignity? That God thought of you from before the foundation of the world and crafted you with intentionality and care? Like, if they started with that and then went into the whole pants thing, like, I'd probably have a lot more time a day to debate about the context of Deuteronomy 22.5. The point is, Without question, this was the closest thing I've ever felt 
to what I read about in the Gospels when Jesus speaks about the Pharisees, a self-righteousness that is quick to judge others and fault-find. And this is what Jesus is calling out in our passage today. The Pharisees had a different standard of righteousness and morality than even God himself did. What they would do is they would add rules on top of the Mosaic law called the Mishnah in efforts to obey the law. But in the process, these rules only work to enforce legalism, burden people, and fuel pride for this religious sect. And so no one could keep all of these rules. And so the Pharisees always had something on anyone. They could point to some way that you weren't measuring up to their standards. And against this, Jesus warns us not to pronounce unfair judgment on others. Now, there are three ways that we can pronounce unfair judgment. Number one, we can hold people to man-made standards like the Pharisees did. Number two, we can declare the intent of others or judge their hearts when we only see their behaviors. Even if it's a sin issue, if we make definitive statements about someone's character based on the behaviors we see, this is judgment. And thirdly, by damning others. So it's not ours to judge the eternal destiny of people. So I believe that these guys that talked to Jenny and I, they were doing that. They said we were going straight to hell. We aren't to set ourselves up as the ultimate judge of others. Only God is the ultimate judge. Now, if we're honest, though, we can be quick to judge others. We can assume the worst about them. We have a bias toward ourselves, a bent towards ourselves. We tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, don't we? And then we tend to judge the intentions of others when we see their behaviors. But Jesus encourages us to be slow to judge others. Why? Well, number one, we risk hypocrisy. More on this later. Number two, we'll be judged with the same degree of severity that we judge with. And that's a scary thought, isn't it? Now, what does it mean, judge not that you be not judged, and that with the measure you use, it will be measured to you? Well, there are two streams of thought, and I think it could be both. Maybe it's just the easy way out, but we're going to go with both. Um, the first is that it's proverbial wisdom about how the world works, that if you have a critical attitude towards others, most likely, this is going to be your own experience of others in the world, that they will be critical towards you. Or, if you withhold judgment, often others will do the same to you. So this is kind of the thinking of what goes around comes around. The way that we treat others, this is going to be the way that um, they treat us. But the second and most common interpretation is that with the same amount of harshness that we use in judging others, we too will be judged by God in the same way. It's a similar idea to what Jesus says earlier in Matthew chapter 6. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So when we hold others captive, we're dismissing God's mercy. And that's the very thing that brings us joy, that brings us peace and reconciliation, identifies us as one of Christ's own. And so the wisdom that I think we need to heed from these passages is that we should have some healthy fear of God and forgive others and be extremely careful in how we judge others. Again, be slow to judge. Now a third reason 
we should be slow to judge is because we don't know everything as we judge others. I love this quote by F.B. Meyer. He says, when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are three things we do not know. First, we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same circumstances. So we don't know the circumstances that people are facing, so we need to be slow to bring judgment, whether it's about a sin issue or just judging how someone is acting. Leadership author Stephen Covey describes this story of where he was on a train in New York one time, and uh, a father and and some children stepped on board the train, and the kids were shouting, throwing things around, causing a ruckus, and you could tell it was like kind of disturbing everyone else on the train, and so, you know, I guess Stephen Covey decides to, after a while, like work up the courage to talk to the guy, and he says, sir, your, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. And the man replied, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Completely changes the interpretation of what's going on, doesn't it? Right? Like There's some needed context that was necessary for what was happening there. And to Stephen Covey's credit, he then said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear this. Like, How can I help? But curiosity is needed before we judge others. This is so important. Now at this point, I'm sure some of you are thinking like, does this mean that all forms of judging are wrong? And the answer is no. How often do we hear people point to this verse and say, you can't judge me, like God's my only judge. And this verse can be used as a way of avoiding accountability and keeping people from calling things out in our lives that don't align with the kingdom that Jesus has been describing in the Sermon on the Mount. So no, as the people of God, we don't ignore sin or avoid accountability. Obedience to Christ is important. The church isn't supposed to look like the rest of the world, right? The pendulum can swing so far the other way that we just shrug sin off like it's no big deal because you know we're all about grace. This isn't what Jesus is getting at. Although we aren't to be the moral guardians and critics of one another, there are scriptures that teach us to be judging without being judgmental. So for example, in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Sin destroys our relationship with others and with God, and we are to be holy as God is holy. So sin must be addressed within the church, but how we do that is important. More on this soon. But elsewhere in scripture, we also see that the church is to exercise discernment or judgment in distinguishing wolves from among the sheep, those who seek to harm the church. So there needs to be some judgment there. We see that character must be evaluated before promoting people to church leadership. And we see instructions in Matthew 18 on how to provide Uh, confront a brother or sister in sin. So there's judgment, there's discernment that goes on. So no, we don't just chuck all judgment out the window. Frederick Dale Bruner summarizes this well with the following quote. He says, we are not asked to surrender the judgment of discrimination. We are not to make final judgments on anyone, nor to speak assuredly of people's real character, nor to pretend we know God's verdict on other people's lives. 
Now, before we start judging others, we need to first judge ourselves, lest we be hypocritical. Jesus uses some comical imagery here of a person with a log in his own eye trying to remove a speck of dust in the eye of another. That's crazy. Like, if you imagine that scene, like, how can you even see a speck if you've got this long protruding log in your own eye? Now, this wasn't a log like Pinocchio's nose or something. Like, the word for log here that's being used was of supporting beams in a building structure, right? So, like, we just built this new building. Like, think of, like, a big truss beam that, like, supports uh, a, a lot of the structure of a building. Humongous. And so this log represents a glaring sin issue or weakness in our own lives that we're blind to. And we so easily see unrighteousness and faults in others before we see it in ourselves. We tend to minimize our own faults, magnify the faults of others. And the funny, ironic thing is often the log in our own eye is that critical spirit itself. But Jesus is saying, that self-evaluation and self-awareness is the key before we seek to point out the faults in others. That we need to examine ourselves first. And how do we do this? Well, we invite the Holy Spirit to speak and highlight the areas in our lives that need further redemption. Listen to what David says in Psalm 139. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Once we examine ourselves, become aware of our faults, and repent of these things, then we can see clearly. This is so important, and here's why. If we haven't humbled ourselves and done this, we're going to be speaking out of a critical, proud spirit, not with compassion, we're going to be elevating ourselves and putting ourselves on a pedestal where we judge others and tell them to just get on our level. We're judging people from a place of superiority and self-righteousness, and we call this contempt. Robert C. Solomon, philosopher at the University of Texas, distinguishes between resentment, anger, and contempt. He says resentment is anger directed toward a higher status individual. Anger is directed toward an equal status individual. And contempt is anger directed toward a lower status individual. So when we judge others without first examining ourselves, we devalue them and categorize them as less than. But this is not the way of Jesus or the kingdom. Here's what the way of Jesus looks like. Luke 18, 9 to 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles, humbles himself will be exalted. So we've got a condescending, contemptuous fairy, a Pharisee, 
on the one side, and we've got a contrite tax collector on the other side. How do you think that that tax collector is going to correct a brother or sister in sin after he's tasted and seen of the Lord's abundant mercy? I'm willing to bet the full amount of that tax money that he collected that he'd be compassionate, not contemptuous. He can minister well to others because he knows his own brokenness. Henri Nouwen says, only wounded healers have a right to heal. So here's the gold nugget of the sermon. When we know our brokenness, when we become poor in spirit, we can speak to others as a brother or a sister, a teammate or a fellow sojourner on the journey of faith, as an equal, not as a superior. Only then can we be a person who comes alongside others, helps them see what's destroying them and their lives out of compassion, love, and empathy. Is that not what the Holy Spirit does, the one who comes alongside, the helper, the advocate, the paraclete? In solidarity, we can say, let's link arms and limp towards Christ together. I need grace just as much as you do. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There's four things that I notice in, this, in these two verses. Number one, we're called to restore, right? The goal of pointing out sin isn't for destruction. It's always for the purpose of restoration, Restoration with God and with others. And we do this how? In gentleness. And while we do this, we're wary of our own propensity towards sin. And finally, we walk alongside others, helping carry their burdens, not adding to their burdens through judgment. So when we model this kind of godliness, people are a lot more likely to listen to our words of correction. Harsh judgment gets us nowhere. It isn't by our disapproval of others that they change, but we seem to think this. Like, it's no surprise that people open up about their deepest feelings and areas of brokenness in front of a counselor who listens well and does what? Withhold judgment. Empathy and love are catalysts for vulnerability and in turn, heart and behavioral change. And so instead of meeting people with condemnation, we are to meet them with compassion, like Jesus did. How did Jesus treat the woman caught in adultery? How did he interact with the woman at the well who was sleeping with her boyfriend? How, how did he treat Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who cheated people of their money? When Jesus looked at people, he looked with eyes of compassion, not condemnation. Why? Well, I think most of our sin is really just a symptom that's masking our unaddressed pain at a soul level. That patterns of dysfunction and sinful coping strategies pop up and take root as we endure trauma and hardship. And this is how we just learn to function in the world. Can you imagine if Jesus just condemned us because we're sinners, like from on top, hey, you really suck down there, get on my level. 
No, like that's not what he did, right? He came low, he entered into our pain, descended into that, met us in the midst of that, heals us, and then by his grace, we begin to look more like him. So what if the pathway to help restore people in sin starts with compassion and descending into their pain rather than critical judgment of sin that's only masking that pain underneath? Is this not the incarnational way of our savior that we're invited into? Charles Spurgeon says this, he says, oh, the stoop of the Redeemer's amazing love. Let us henceforth contend how low we can go side by side with him. But remember, when we have gone to the lowest, he descends lower still, so that we can truly feel that the very lowest place is too high for us because he has gone lower still. We have a savior who enters into our pain, who goes low, lifts us up, and we're called to do the same to be imitators of God. And so we are called to be slow to judge others, quick to judge ourselves, and we're also called to be wise among the world. This is where we get to verse six, and it's a challenging verse to interpret. Part of me wishes the sermon ended at verse five, but we got verse six. So this is what it says. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot, and turn to attack you. So what on earth does this mean? Well, some commentators believe that it refers to exercising wisdom as we proclaim the gospel, that we need the discernment to know when to move on if people aren't responding to the good news. But the problem I have with this interpretation is that it doesn't really fit the context. Jesus gives no indication that he's switching from talking about judgmental attitudes towards others to exercising discernment as we proclaim the gospel. And this verse also doesn't fit in the next passage on prayer. So we have to do something with it here. Instead, I agree with uh, commentator Stephen Armstrong's interpretation of this verse. I think what Jesus is trying to say is that we aren't to impose our standard of morality on the unbelieving world. That we need to be wise among the world when we judge the sinful actions of unbelievers, we're giving them something that is of no use to them. Again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 that we aren't to judge those outside the church. And so we're offering them good, precious truths, but because they don't come from a Christocentric worldview, most will ignore what we're saying, just as a pig tramples on pearls. And in other cases, when we impose our morals on unbelievers, our judgment brings about anger and hatred in them, hardening them to the truth. And here's the thing. Even if they adopt our morals, it's only external behavior change, not inward transformation that comes through the gospel. True righteousness, we know, isn't earned through our good works, praise God. We're clothed with Christ's righteousness when we confess him as Savior and King. So let us not seek to create the kingdom without the king. May we not preach a gospel of works, leading people to believe that they must clean themselves up before they come to Christ, or that they can somehow attain righteousness on their own. May we always preach Christ and him crucified. Once someone's heart has received the gospel, then he or she is open to receiving the wisdom of God on how to live. We can't put the cart before the horse. Now, I think I should mention at this point, 
a quick qualifier. Does this mean we can never call out behavior in the life of an unbeliever? Like what about relationships where there's abuse or like someone's clearly getting hurt? No, I think, yes, you can address that, right? Like, we have laws. Um, we, you know, we're, we're called to defend the weak in that. But I think it's a different thing entirely when we take what Jesus expects of the church and put that on the world, right? And so, yes, you can have hard confrontational conversations with people if there's patterns of evil being done. Uh, that should be addressed, but should be done in love, but that doesn't mean that we just, we, we just need to stay silent, right? So I just want to say that. But it's once someone's heart has received the gospel that then they can receive the wisdom of God on how to live. So I was saying that we can't put the cart before the horse, but often this is what the church does, right? The church is known for what it's against <laughs> more than what it's known for. The perception of the church outside of the church is as self-righteous, bigoted, narrow-minded, judgmental, hypocritical, the list goes on. According to recent surveys done by Barna, the church trend research group, only 21% of non-Christians think about the church in a positive way. That's not that good. And not only that, but the number one reason non-Christians doubt Christianity isn't because of science, human suffering, or the claim to exclusive truth, but the hypocrisy of the church. 42% of non-Christians polled indicated this as their top reason. So if you look at the column on the right, you'll see that, 42%. That's the top reason why they doubt Christianity, is it's us. <laughs> um, the article was saying that non-believers generally don't have an issue with Jesus and his message, but they do with the church, and that's a problem. What that means is that the church isn't representing Jesus well. The world feels judged by us. I'm not saying that you know, all forms of cultural activism are, are wrong, but that isn't how we win the culture to Christ. It isn't by picketing or shouting loudly about what we're against. When we judge the behaviors of unbelievers, it doesn't promote righteousness, but only works to either alienate or confuse them from knowing the true gospel. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, according to Romans 2.4, not his judgment. And we're to imitate him. So as I close, I want to address us as a church before funneling down to an individual level. So I want you to imagine with me what could happen if we viewed everyone we encountered through the eyes of Christ. If we saw people with dignity and value, not as those to be judged and condemned. I love how John Tyson, pastor of Church of the City, New York, an author, says this about Jesus' view of people says, Jesus had a filter of honor for all he encountered. Regardless of the contempt their culture showed them, he saw it differently. He didn't see tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, outcasts, or Samaritans. He saw people crowned with glory, worthy of welcome and recognition in the community of God. Jesus' filter of value created a community unlike the world had ever seen. Wow, community unlike the world had ever seen. I think our world is longing for that kind of church community, for us to be different, for us to be known for our grace and our compassion. Imagine what that would do in our city. 
What if the renewal of our city started with kindness and value instead of judgment? What if we served the city with eyes of love rather than carrying an air of superiority? What if we were known as a community of grace and compassion among the Tri-Cities rather than judgment, contempt, and condemnation? What if we were known as the church on the top of the hill that isn't self-righteous, but self-aware and growing in love? I've always been struck by the passage in Mark 6 that tells us Jesus could not do any miracles in his own hometown except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Why was this? In addition to lack of faith, the context shows that Jesus was met with contempt by those in the city. Contempt within a community quenches the spirit of God. Could it be that we're quenching the spirit of God by our contempt for one another and for those outside the church? I just wonder how the spirit might move among us if we were known for mercy. Now let me boil it down to an individual level. As I was preparing for this sermon, praying, I just sensed that, hey, there might be like some people in this room who need to come forward and receive prayer. We're gonna have pastoral staff up here, uh, elders, anyone on the prayer team, on hand to pray as we head into this response song. And so I wonder if, if there's some people right now who feel like they've just been living under a cloud of judgment. Like they feel like they've been living underneath someone's thumb. It may be a specific person in your life, a number of people, and you feel like you're not good enough or that you'll never measure up to the standards placed on you. And I believe that Christ wants to set you free from living under the shadow of the judgment of others. In Christ, there is no condemnation over you, Romans 8.1. In Christ, you've been set free from shame and the need to perform for God's love and affection. So I wonder if the Father just wants to shower you with his mercy and his love and his grace and his affirmation over you this morning, that it would wash over you. You would know that he delights in you as a precious son, or a daughter as his beloved child, that you don't need to live for the approval of others because you have the approval of your heavenly father and that's all that matters. And so if that's you this morning, maybe it's been years, maybe it's a concentrated season that you're in where you've felt nothing but judgment and you need to feel that release, you need to, you need, you need to be prayed over by someone to know that God is merciful to know that he delights in you, come forward. Secondly, I wonder if through this sermon, maybe the Spirit's been convicting you. Maybe you think, wow, like I've been, I've been that voice of condemnation in someone's life. I've been judgmental, I've had this critical spirit and the Spirit is wooing you through compassion and kindness and mercy, come forward. It doesn't have to be this way. Again, what's, what's the goal of repentance? It's reconciliation with God and with others. So the Spirit searched you. He's prompting you to come forward, inviting you to humble yourself, repent, receive his forgiving and transformative grace. And thirdly, I wonder if there's some people in this room who don't know the grace of God. All they've understood about God is that he's judgmental. That he's this angry guy in the sky who's just ready to zap you as soon as you make a mistake. 
and that this view of God has influenced the way you view yourself and the way that you view others. And this is not the Father's heart. One of the best books I read in the last year was called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. It's saying that in all of the Gospels, there's one verse that talks about Jesus' heart for sinners and sufferers. It's that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Matthew 11, 28. How does he view you, even in the midst of your sin and your brokenness? Gentle, compassion, lowly, entering in, diving low to lift up, to restore. And so I wonder if God wants to break off some of these false views of who he is in your life. And that's what's gonna set you on a course to be known as a person of mercy in your own life. That as people encounter you, they're gonna see that you're merciful because you've received and you know the merciful heart of the Father. So I'm gonna invite the pastoral staff up this time or other staff members, um, elders, prayer team, and John and Alyssa are gonna lead us through this song. It's more contemplative, reflective. So I wanna encourage you to come forward if you resonate with any of those three things and know that you're not gonna be judged when you come forward for prayer, right? We're all on an equal playing field here, all in need of Jesus' grace. If you don't come forward, that's okay. Take some time to just sit in the pew, reflect, respond, look over the lyrics. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you you are slow to anger and rich in love, abounding in mercy, that you're patient, that your heart is one of kindness, that you're gentle and you're lowly. Thank you, Father, that you treat us not as our sins deserve. Thank you for your incredible grace that not only forgives and redeems, but restores and empowers. Jesus, I am a man of unclean lips and I need your mercy. Father, search us. Spirit, search us. If there's any grievous way in us, would you in your kindness show us what's getting in the way of intimacy with you and intimacy with others? We know you do this out of your love. And Father, I pray that you would just break off any any false ideas of who you are that people may have in this room. Lord, if they see you as critical and judgmental and angry, Lord, I pray that they would experience and encounter your love afresh today. Incredible grace, compassion. Love that verse that you've given us in Romans. It's by your compassion that we're led to repentance, by your kindness that we're led to repentance. And so Jesus, we love you. We thank you that we don't have to clean ourselves up to come to you, but we come in our dirt and our filth and our sin and our shame and you wash us and you make us new and you justify us before we perform. We thank you, Lord, that we live out of a place of being justified and made right rather than working to earn it. And so, Father, I pray that you would just bring healing to places of wounding in the lives of my brothers and sisters here this morning. God, that you set us free from the sin of judging others. 
we would revere you, stand in awe of you, respect you as the ultimate judge. Thank you for setting us free, declaring us righteous. We praise you, Father, in your name. Amen. All right. Well, this time we're going to head into that song. So come forward for prayer. Don't, don't be shy. Don't be ashamed. We all need prayer. Thanks for listening to this message. If you've been listening to our sermons, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.